Welcome everyone to another episode of Modern Adoption, the podcast where we explore the frontiers of adoption, striving to modernize every aspect of this complex journey. I'm Jess, a two-time birth mom. And I'm Erin, a two-time adoptive mom, and we are here to be your hosts on this incredible and complex journey. On Modern Adoption, our conversations are so much more than just stories and anecdotes. We dive deep into the heart of adoption, examining the laws, available technology, and processes that truly shape the landscape of private adoption. Why? Because everything we're going to talk about on this show is in service to modernizing adoption. Each episode, we're going to bring you insightful interviews with experts and discussions on the latest advancements in adoption practices. We're not just here to talk, we're truly here to inspire change. So whether you're someone considering adoption or simply curious about the evolving landscape of family building, join us on this journey as we navigate the seas of change, hopefully provide some insight along the way, and ultimately advocate for progress. Woof! I'm excited. Mm -hmm. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about 2024 adoption trends, some of the recent changes we've seen, developments, a a big perspective change that we've seen in private adoption, such as open adoption, policy changes, and the role technology plays in adoption. Yeah, so we're recording this in January of 2024, and I think we saw probably the most change I've ever seen an adoption happen probably in the last six to nine months. Um, And some of the big changes took effect as of January 1 this year. So um, we'll dig into them today and and talk through them. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest shifts we've seen in private adoption is the rise of open adoption. Uh, Today, over 90% of adoptions are now open compared to even 10, 20, certainly 30, 40 years ago, most adoptions were closed and and hidden and done in secrecy. And now we've seen a huge rise of open adoption. What do you think that, or why, Jess? What do you, what what do you think that happened? Uh, Certainly the rise of technology and the internet, um, the use of social media and adoption uh, between things like DNA and Ancestry.com and 23andMe. And Facebook and Instagram, it's nearly impossible to not be able to find somebody. Um, yeah. And and I think we saw a big shift in empowering expectant moms. I mean, the norm now is expectant moms are kind of expected to be able to choose the family that they are placing their child with, whereas mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, you were kind of told the family that you were going to be placing your child with. Oh, it's so, I mean, it's wonderful. I think that so many adoptions are open now, but it does. I mean, you realize that you, how many adoptions, because this is such a new thing, how many adoptions mm-hmm. were closed or women felt coerced to place. And now, you know, like there's, there are adults with massive questions or a sense of, loss and who am I? Anyhow, we, we, that's not what today is about. We will do a podcast on that, but uh, definitely, I'm glad that is, this is the new trend. And yes, the internet is part of adoption. Everybody, the internet is part of adoption. 
it is not going anywhere. So we might as well figure out how to use it for good and and safely. I mean, it has it's incredibly powerful. I was talking to a woman the other day. Um, she's an adoptee. She's on our advisory board, and uh, she was talking about some random in like, is this a scam website that she posted? Uh, just a few sentences, what she knew about her birth story, because she had never connected with her birth family. Yeah. And just the stars aligned and her birth mom had also found this random site and was reading this classified post that she had, uh, that she had presented with just some of the basic, like, I think this was her name. This was the year. This was the town. This was some of the description I knew about my baby blanket. Um, And the woman saw it and was like, I, I think she's talking about me and they reconnected and they had this beautiful relationship until her mom passed. But, um, you know, that's like, that's the power of the internet. The internet can do that. The internet can keep people safe. The internet can connect people. The internet can streamline these arduous processes. I don't think anybody I've ever met ever in adoption was like, Oh, what a great process. You know? And that's like, we have the potential to change that. now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. What's that's, that's kind of the first major trend. I think we have five, right. That we've seen that have yeah, like major. Got first one is of, yep. And the second is we've seen some big policy changes, uh, this past year. Um, the biggest one kind of going into effect January 1st, which was coming out of California was assembly bill 120. And that was a bill that did two major things. The first was it outlawed facilitators, um, which for those of you who don't know, facilitators are unlicensed and unregulated matching entities um, that are pretty well. Yeah. Yep. Um, And so California shut the door on facilitators. So all the facilitators in California had to close up shop as of January 1. And the second part of that legislation was it is enforcing a shift in California from being an attorney state to an agency-only state. So adopting families in California are going to have to work with an adoption agency, a licensed adoption agency, uh, to handle all aspects of the adoption process, uh, whereas previously they could use an attorney for placement and finalization. That's not going to be the case anymore. Um, and. On our next episode, we're going to be joined by someone who is super instrumental um, in some of these policy changes in California to kind of dive deeper, help us get some clarity um, and answer a lot of questions that some families are having about where to go from here in California. Well, families and professionals, because I think what you just articulated said it pretty like black and white, and that is what the law says. But there's so many questions. There's so much gray area. And we've been talking to the powers be, and they don't even have all the answers. Right. Uh, and so we're like, all right, let's get to, let's, let's get the answers. And so like Jess said, we're going to bring somebody on that can, that can talk more uh, about the legislation and as they know it now, how it's being enforced, what the rules are, everything there. Yep. Um, so stay tuned for that one. And then on the federal side, we saw a lot of action. It's been so a I big think- year. Yes. And so, and it's great. How wonderful that uh, policy- It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Paying attention to some of the 
horrible practices that are happening in adoption today. So um, just real fast, the kind of overview on the four federal uh, bills that have been or legislation that's been introduced. One is the ADOPT Act. Um, and that is legislation that protects families, children, and expectant moms from exploitation, from unlicensed paid adoption intermediary, intermediaries, and ensures that adoption providers and attorneys provide adoption services only in the states where they are licensed. So that one can be a little contentious too, um, I would imagine. So um, we'll get some more information on that one. But that is um, brought by... Uh, Representative Annie Custer, Representative Doug Lamborn, and Representative Robert Adderholt. So if you have questions about that one, go to their site or NCFA. Yes. Uh, the second one is, and actually that one probably has a lot of similarities to what's happening in California. So it'll be interesting to see how those. Two I think are. I think California was kind of the testing the waters for the Adopt Act. Yeah, yeah, but I go. I think again, I think. I think the spirit of all of this legislation we can under, we understand and support in terms of like, yeah, let's get the unlicensed people that have some bad intentions or people that just see this as like a place to charge more fees. Exactly. Uh, let's get them out of it. Let's get them out of the process. Yep. And let's make sure that perf- that families and moms are being guided by, you know, licensed ethical adoption professionals. You know, Absolutely. That's never a bad thing. No. Um, the second one is the In Good Standing Adoption Act, um, and that is a bill that will require the Department of Health and Human Services to publish an annual list of adoption agencies in each state that are in good standing. It doesn't say it in the bill language, but I think that's only going to be nonprofit adoption agencies. I think so, too. All of the press releases that I've seen about the In Good Standing Act, it is focusing on nonprofit agencies. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of for-profit agencies that are out there. So I get, I don't know if they are just going to be like not on this list or yeah. else, but the other thing that this legislation would do is uh, would also require HHS to uh, disclose any disciplinary actions that's been mm-hmm. taken against the agencies. Uh, and, you know, the idea is to offer transparency and safeguards to anybody that is looking for a professional to hire. So if an agency has a few strikes against them in terms of, I don't know, what would be an example of a strike? Um, anything to do with their taxes, uh, any, you know, ethical complaints that have been brought against them. Um, if they used of like paying an expectant mom, yeah. like that would be something that would be flagged as disciplinary action. Yep. Um, and that's, uh, so two of the same characters. So Representative Doug Lamborn, Representative Annie Custer, and Representative Lloyd Smucker. Um, you'll start to see some of these names pop up a lot and a lot. So there's a lot of, there's some policymakers that very much care about what's going on in adoption. But um, the great the thing ser- about it is that they're all bipartisan pieces of legislation. So yeah. we're seeing a lot of support across party lines to, to make some positive impactful change in adoption. Yeah, that's great. The third one is adoption counts. And this is one that I really want Paratree to help with. But um, there really hasn't been any kind of federal data collection on private private domestic adoption since the 70s. Like none at the federal level. Nothing. Um, which is bonkers to me. But um, anyhow, so this bill would require the Children's Bureau of the Department of Health and Human Services to collect and maintain information regarding private adoption. 
Um, and, you know, for obvious reasons, this is the kind of data that is super critical when people are going to be making laws. There, yeah. there has to be, there, even the, like the benchmark doesn't exist in terms of if you Google how many adoptions happen in the United States or how many families are pursuing adoption in the United States, you're like, I don't one know. two million, you know, like that's, that's insane that we don't have those numbers because mm-hmm. we can't. And so, and the, the more data we have, the better we can make the laws, the stronger we can make, uh, you know, advocating for more support. So this data is really critical. And um, that is the sponsor. That one is Doug Lamborn. Um, and then the last one is, I think, remarkable, but this is the Hospital Education Education Act. Um, and that is because most healthcare professionals don't have adequate training on you know, the various adoption-related issues that arise in the medical care setting. Um, so this would mandate training um, be developed to educate medical personnel, including hospital social workers, who are almost always involved in an adoption process if you are adopting an infant. Um, and the goal is to ensure that the well-being and rights of all persons impacted um, in adoption are protected. I know just anecdotally, the, the two adoptions that we've been through, both of them were, we were in the hospital when kiddos were born and the hospital social workers were involved and in both cases had no idea what to do. So, um, and through no fault of their own, they obviously haven't ever had training on this, but again, because adoption is on the rise, this is becoming much more important that, um, the the social workers are involved and, and know what's up. Yeah, absolutely. There is one other piece of federal legislation, the PAPA Act, which is protecting all parents and adoptees, which essentially is going to create a national putative father registry, uh, which is a place where uh, alleged putative fathers can all go to put their names on this registry so that they'll be notified of adoption proceedings. If they're in the same state or a different state, most states have their own state-specific putative father registry, but this is going to create a national one, which is a huge step in preserving the rights of birth fathers and um, just making sure that adoption is healthier and more ethical um, and, uh, and making sure that adoptees have access to as much information about their origin story as possible. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think we, we, we have both heard stories from expectant moms or birth moms where they were recommended to just say, just say you don't know who the birth dad is because it makes it easier. Mm -hmm. makes it easier for the, on the paperwork or agency side. Um, But what happens if, like what would happen just in in that event if she does, does know who the birth father is? Then you're essentially severing someone's paternal rights without giving them the opportunity to to step up to be involved either in their child's life or be a willing participant in the adoption process um when you say i have a question so say adopting family is working with an expectant mom and expectant mom says i don't know who the birth dad is and uh and she does know who the birth dad is. If birth dad finds out about this, could he contest the adoption? Potentially? Yes. Okay. So, and then not to mention exactly what you're saying is like, 
this is the one thing that I want all adopting families to know. And I know I'm on a soapbox about this all the time, so I won't put it on every podcast episode. But if I could jump into an adopting family's brain and tell them, you probably have tunnel vision around becoming a parent right now, which I understand I've been there. Um, But the minute you become a parent, that tunnel vision will shift to, oh my gosh, how do I create the healthiest environment for this kid to be raised in? And that involves honesty and transparency around their birth story. Mm -hmm. And so like, sure, you might be able to get the adoption done, transaction done faster if the birth dad isn't in the picture. But the minute you become a parent of that kiddo, you're going to want you, you want all that information. So it's like the more, the more transparent, the more honest the adoption process is up front. Yes, it might mean that the birth dad says, no, I want to parent this child. Or the birth dad's family says, no, we'll parent this child and that the adoption wouldn't happen for you. And how wonderful. That that kiddo gets to stay with their biological family. Yeah. And that is the hardest. It's so hard to swallow as a, as a person that's trying to adopt, but how wonderful if that did happen. And so do everything in your power to try to make sure that your process follows, you know, follows the right kind of ethical process and every T is crossed and I is dotted. Mm -hmm. Um, ultimately if it does happen, then you will be able to answer your kiddos questions openly and honestly, which really sets the foundation for a a much more beautiful relationship for your kiddo and, and with the birth family. Absolutely. I love your soapbox and it's, it's absolutely right. At the end of the day, I, as a birth mom, you as an adoptive mom, our kiddos are going to have questions, uh, about their adoption and their birth family and their birth fathers and the the healthier the better relationships that we have that we have created um and the safer and more ethically that we can do adoption just creates healthier open adoption relationships creates healthier adoptees and makes those really difficult questions a lot easier to answer down the road yeah i agree Our other favorite thing to talk about, our other soapbox that we like to get on, is the big change we've seen in adoption regarding technology and how technology and the internet has really been able to transform adoption. Yeah, truly. And I think that, so we've been on the scene for a couple of years now, and I think, um, I think, you know, we meet with adoption professionals multiple times a week. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that they're starting to say, like, okay, how do we use the internet? How can we, again, yeah. harness the power of it, but in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that technology can improve this process. Number one um, is just making sure that all of the licensed adoption professionals are connected across this country. It yes. blows my mind that the adoption professionals are as fragmented as they are, especially when adoptions are happening across state lines as often as they do. Mm -hmm. 
um, or families are, are crossing lines. They're, they're located in Washington state and they're hiring an agency in Kansas. You know, like it's just like that blows my mind that adoption professionals do not have a platform to stay connected. And um, spoiler, that's what Fairtree is. Yes. Um, um, but also just in terms of like it, like the ease at which, you know, you said it, like this is the first time in history where everybody has grown up with the internet and Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're used to turning to the internet. Adopting families are used to turning to the internet. Expectant moms, birth families are used to turning to the internet first. Uh, And so why we need to make sure that the technology aligns ethically and is put in the hands of the licensed professionals um, to make sure that um, to make sure it can be kind of guided safely. Yeah. I mean, we say it all the time, professionals, expectant and birth parents and adopting families deserve modern access. And that's what we're creating. Yeah. And one of the things that I think we have seen um, technology and it's, again, it's shining some pretty bright lights on some of the major flaws in adoption that, again, I'm like, has no one ever talked about this? Is uh, so technology in the home study process. Yeah. I am floored at what happens that, you know, this is some of the most sensitive data that an adopting family is providing to a home study provider. And the fact that some of that data goes through channels like email, mm-hmm. you know, like it's so, it's not secure at all. And so, I think that was one of our purposes when we created our platform is to make sure that number one, it's HIPAA compliant, um, but to make sure too, that it's like the, the, um, the, and you know, easily shared and that kind of thing, but to make sure that, again, this goes back to linking all adoption professionals is when a family is going through a home study process, people have this impression that it's so investigative. And, you know, I, I felt it when I got through our home studies, I was like, oh my gosh, everybody that everybody should have to go through that in order to have a kid. But then when you start looking at it, which is what we've done, you know, for the mm-hmm. last two years is a, a lot of the information that, you know, background checks are being run on, uh, if, if whether or not a family is approved or denied, well, the, the background information, like a lot of that information is self-reported. So if I'm a family that wants to like, not have a background clearance run in Nevada because I have a criminal background in Nevada. I'm just going to not write down Nevada in my address history. Mm -hmm. And no one would ever be the wiser. No. Which is bonkers. And a little bit terrifying as a birth mom. Oh, I'm sure. Like, so everybody gets through this process and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I'm like, check the box. I'm a great family. I have a license to parent now. Yeah, where home study providers can be approving families that have criminal backgrounds and they would never know it. Mm -hmm. That is another thing that blows my mind, which we're going to do a whole podcast on because that is like just just the home study stuff. And then not to mention, we had a family that was denied their first home study through one of our home study professionals. And they're sent a letter that says, okay, family, I'm sorry, we're denying you. Now it's your responsibility to tell the people, if you ever decide to pursue this again, that you've been denied a home study. Who's going to do that? Yeah, they were denied a home study. They're not going to want to tell the next home study provider. And none of them are connected. The professionals aren't connected to each other. 
And so it makes it really easy for the family, a family that's been denied to just like, all right, now I know where my pitfalls are when I go to right. my next home provider. That's, that's crazy to me. Yeah. And, crazy. and so yeah. increasing that safety and security in specifically the home study process, but adoption overall is something that we're both super passionate about. Um, and one of the biggest changes that we're seeing in in the adoption industry today is um, that rise of technology. And the next biggest change that we're seeing is the number of adopting families that are pursuing adoption in relation to the number of expectant moms that are placing kiddos for adoption. Mm-hmm. I know the number that we hear most often is 40 to 40, 43 to every, 43 adopting families to every one expectant mom. And I saw something probably towards the end of last year from another um, adoption professional. And she was saying that the average is 75 to one. That's insane. Yeah. That but is. Again, these are not, this is, this is data that is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't a national anything. On no, this. there's no national database of how many people have approved home studies currently, of how many people have act, are actively waiting to adopt, have adopted within the last year, five years. Um, but gosh, that 75 adopting families to every one infant that's placed for adoption just I, I think literally my jaw hit the floor and that made me really grateful for the work that we do here and the really strong belief that we have in keeping our ratio of adopting families to expectant moms low um, at, we never let our our number of adopting families to expectant moms get above 15 to one. Um, yeah, I don't think it's ever been even close to no. one to I don't think it's ever been close to I think seven to one I think is the highest that we've ever gotten because I think the goal is like how do we provide you know as an adopting family I did not want to put my profile on a site that I thought it was just going to be some black hole of adoption exactly profile. with so, 3,000 yeah. other families yeah like I want the ability to connect with an expectant mom but we also are always trying to balance like we need to make sure expectant moms have all the choice that they would need to make this gigantic decision. Exactly. And technology really has the power to enable that. Yeah. Like never, ever should an adoption professional be in the situation where they're like, I can't find a family. Right. Those numbers, there's 75 families. Exactly. Like never should. Or here are the only five families I have pick from one of these five. Like this is quite possibly the single most important decision an expectant mom is ever going to make. And you're going to tell her you can only pick from five, five. When, no. when we have these numbers of like 75 families, everyone, it's, it's, that's bonkers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then, okay, so the last trend that we saw, um, I think is super cool. And um, is we're going to do a podcast on this too, because I don't think a lot of adopting families even know what these are or how to use them, but the rise of adoption benefits. Um, there are yeah. so many companies like parental leave policies around adoption. 
helping fund uh, your adoption journey, um, making sure that you're fully supported post-adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all benefits that are becoming way more important to employers because they realize that infertility is on the rise and yep. they want women in the workforce longer and women are starting to have um, build families later in life and single people are starting these journeys and LGBTQ families are on these journeys mm-hmm. in order to make sure that all of their employees feel included and um, and that they all, you know, all have a path to parenting via adoption. They want to make sure that they're providing adoption benefits that would be equal to somebody else on a different kind of family building journey. Yeah. And so we got asked to speak at a conference this year down in, uh, down, where was I? I was in Savannah, Georgia. And um, I was, I mean, I was almost in tears when I walked into this conference and I saw thousands of HR professionals who were interested in making sure that all paths, I've been getting teary eyed just thinking of talking about it because it's like, this is incredible. And I get chillies just, just like knowing that this is, this is because this never existed. Like when you and I was going through, like, this wasn't even the thing. It was like, you know, hardly talked about. Yeah. So just in the last five years that it's become like inclusivity has become such a big deal to employers and that they recognize that, you know, families are built a huge variety of ways now and that they need to be able to support all of them. So um, that's another trend that we'll be doing a whole episode on this year. Because that is too important to not dedicate a whole episode to. And we're going to try to get one of um, the big fertility benefits companies to come on and and join us and talk about um, what they're doing to help support adoption benefits um, through yeah, the companies so that, that they note, work for. Just, just as a just as that plug is, so we have um, we have relationships with three of the four of the largest family building benefits companies in the world. So Maven, Carrot, and Kindbody, uh, all three of them very much value adoption journeys, and and that's why they partnered with Fair Street. Um, and so, um, if, if any families out there, you have adoption benefits through one of those, reach out to them immediately, reach out to us and we'll, we can um, send out, we'll send you with more information on how to get going on your journey. I am so excited for everything that we're going to talk about this year. I mean, truly everything that we're going to talk about, on um, this season of modern adoption is in service to modernizing the adoption process from the laws governing adoption to making sure that we're creating modern access for adoption professionals and the expectant and adopting families that they serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Okay, so we like to close every podcast with or every episode with this this question, and we're going to make sure our guests answer these questions too this year. But okay, so Jess, I'm going to put you in the hot seat first. Okay. If you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about adoption and don't say like world peace kind of stuff, like make it specific. Be one thing about adoption. What's the first thing that you would change? That you don't have to put me in the hot seat because this is super easy for me. And this is one of my soapboxes. I would make it illegal for adoption professionals to fly expectant moms to a different state. Um, and it'll completely eliminate that extremely predatory and coercive practice. Well, it sounds like we need a podcast episode on just that. I think Great. we'll have one. Yeah. Okay. Mine um, is a little bit more self-serving for Bear Tree. 
Um, but mine would be, I would want every adoption professional to build an account on Peritree and at least use Peritree so that they can be in communication. If you're a licensed professional, be in communication with other licensed professionals across this country because only good things can come out of being the kind of connective tissue amongst all of the licensed adoption professionals, whether it's just data, you know, like yeah. you don't have to use pear trees, any pear tree services. I just want every adoption professional to be on our platform. So you can at least get like our scam alerts. So that when we know that we're, there's a known scam that is going through this country that we can make sure every adoption professional knows about that instantaneously. That's absolutely wand today. It'll be totally different on the next episode. I'm sure. But if you do want to use Paratreat, we have a ton of really cool features that we are building to make our platform better for you as adoption professionals and to make it better for expectant moms and the adopting families that you serve. Yeah. So thanks for joining us today on this episode of Modern Adoption. And remember, we are we are here for you. So if there's something that you want us to talk about, let us know on social media. Um, and do hit that subscribe button. This is gonna Did give you, you just a hit it? Yeah, give it a minute to hit it. Um, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode full of aha moments and conversations that make you think about your view on adoption. I can't wait. We'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye.